0: This is Scott Edinger, author of The Growth Leader, Strategies to Drive the Top and Bottom Lines, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern
1: marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello. Thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today we welcome Scott Edinger to talk about his book, The Growth Leader, Strategies to Drive the Top and Bottom Lines, published by Fast Company Press and distributed by Greenleaf Book Group. Scott K. Edinger is a consultant, author, advisor, and speaker who is recognized as an expert in the intersection of leadership, strategy, and sales. He has worked with Fortune 50 clients and businesses of all sizes around the world to lead business growth. He has written two other books and over a hundred articles in Forbes and Harvard Business Review, amongst other publications. His other books are "The Hidden Leader: Discover and Develop Greatness Within Your Company," published in 2015, and "The Inspiring Leader," published by McGraw Hill in 2009. Scott has served as an affiliate faculty member for the University of North Carolina Kenan Flagler School of Business, home of the fighting Tar Heels. He received his undergraduate degree in communication studies and rhetoric from Florida State University, home of the fighting Seminoles. And interesting facts. He has bungee jumped into a New Zealand canyon and performed with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir despite not being a Mormon or knowing how to read music. Scott, congratulations on the growth leader and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Doug. I appreciate
1: it. So the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, they, are, uh, they know quite a bit about music and how to read music. And yeah. uh, how, how did, did you just sneak in or what, what happened there?
0: Oh it's a long story i uh, you know um, I, someone who worked for me years ago was a member of the Mormon tabernacle choir. oh and uh, I got to join uh, a concert, which was actually a practice that had like three thousand people. It's a big deal for their Christmas concert. yeah and I got to join as a special guest
1: oh so well, great now, before we started recording, you told me that I think just yesterday you found out that your book is now a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Is that right?
0: Yes, Wall Street Journal number four.
1: Oh, well, congratulations on that. Thanks, very exciting, very exciting. I'm not surprised, and I'm gonna tell you why in a minute, but something happened to me a few years back when I was talking to a prospective client. I was working with some senior marketers at a, a manufacturing company, and they mentioned that they were getting ready for a semi-annual sales meeting where they were you know, flying in the sales teams from around the world, and I happen to ask about the CEO and the, you know, the priorities and the goals and his role in the meeting. And they said, oh, the CEO, he doesn't attend the sales meetings. And I remember thinking, what meetings does he go to? I, I could <laughs> not believe a CEO was not attending the sales meetings. And if I had, had met that CEO, this is the first question I'd have asked him. What would you say you do hear. And then <laughs> I read your book, and I realized I might have been onto something. And the reason why is there's been over 60 books about sales on the podcast, and I just was not aware of the disconnect between a lot of CEOs and their, and their sales teams, which we're going to talk about in depth. Right. But th- this was not a long book, but for me, it was a slow read because it was so well written. And I really thank you. I, I congratulate the, you on that. And that's why I'm not surprised either that it's a Wall Street Journal bestseller already. But I really took my time to absorb and enjoy every page. It really is that good. So, hats no, off I- to you.
0: I appreciate it. It only took five years and three full rewrites to get it that way. So, you know, piece of cake.
1: Well, that's why I, I have such admiration for authors like you. And I, I often say I'm like the sports reporter who can't believe he gets to interview the sports stars because authors are very, very generous people, generally speaking, and they pour their heart and soul and their, uh, put their marriage and careers at risk. <laughs> To write these (laughs) these books, yeah, and they pour their souls out, and then it just takes a few hours to read them, and it's like you you absorb so much. There's no higher ROI on on these books, and particularly yours. And I want to uh, quote from the beginning; Uh, it just blew me away. And (laughs) it's uh, this is actually a a little chapter before the introduction, and it says, "A note to CEOs: Don't delegate this book." (laughs) This is a leadership book about business growth. It is not a sales book. The mere mention of sales in a business book often changes the category from leadership to sales, but I assure you that this book is for you. Yes, you'll see the word sales frequently enough in these pages, especially with regard to your relationship to the sales organization, but if your business relies on a professional sales team to connect with your customers, growth and sales are inextricably linked. If you hand this book off to your sales team, or to your sales leadership without reading it yourself, you're making a huge mistake. Based on research you'll see soon, it's a mistake that may cause you to miss out on winning 25 to 53% more of the buying decision criteria and on active, engaged, and loyal customers. If you delegate this book down the line, you've already missed the point. Only you, as a senior leader, have the power to direct your company to continuous and sustainable success. And then on the next page, I had to laugh Because you have a special call out just (laughs) for the sales leaders. And there's a lot of sales folks that listen to this. And I want to mention that, you know, why is a sales book on the Marketing Book Podcast? And you've already said it's not a sales book. But the reason why is because I feel so strongly that marketers who don't understand sales, uh, what the sales people are doing, the sales process, the objections they're getting, but more importantly, the way their buyers are buying Mm -hmm. are are. They're arts and crafts party planners who work in the make it pretty department. They are not. They are not going to have a long term marketing career. So I just want to read right. this to the sales leader. You write sales leaders, give this book back to your CEO. <laughs> if you are a VP or manager of sales and your CEO just asked you to review this book, please turn around go back into their office and show them this note. I'd suggest you share this copy or consider getting another and both read it so you can discuss the concepts like a small book club. You will probably agree with many of the sentiments expressed here, but only your company's most senior executives and decision makers can drive these kinds of organization-wide changes. The book will be even more useful once your CEO has internalized its message. You won't be able to do it without their full support. Tell them I sent you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. I want, I want to hear an amen after that. <laughs> there
1: you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Freddie Mercury, Live Aid. Yes. So on page four, you write, in the case of revenue growth, projections that don't pan out, the easiest plausible explanation is that sales drop the ball. When corporate revenue aspirations go wrong, the cause, if you really search for it, is frequently found in the C-suite. So explain why growth is a leadership issue, not a sales issue.
0: Yeah, well, and of course, that's why I wrote the first two notes in the book. Don't delegate <laughs> this book. And sales leaders give it back to your CEO uh, with a you know sort of kind note around that because there is a sense that anytime a leadership book or a business book deals with sales in any way, that uh, it gets delegated. It's like, oh, I don't have to deal with this. As a CEO, it's not it's not what I need to take care of. I'll give it to my EVP of sales or my you know, head of distribution. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you are leading a commercial enterprise and you have any kind of sales organization or any people who are responsible for interfacing with prospects or customers as a means of driving revenue, expanding your business, then as I said in that note... Growth and sales are tied together inextricably, and you have to pay attention to it. And there is this really strong sense that most executives focus on finance, operation, uh, manufacturing, the products, technology, even marketing, usually more than 90% of the time, the functional areas they came up through, Mm -hmm. which often neglect sales. And if you are trying to grow a commercial enterprise and you have a sales team, then you are responsible for how that sales team executes your strategy in the market. So you have to pay attention to it. And it's a huge miss in the, in the uh, book. I cite some research that highlights 86% of executives are either completely disconnected or loosely connected to their sales teams not strategically involved, with close to a third of them totally hands-off, like just get out there and sell and and do your thing and make the number and come back and tell me how it went, Um, or socially involved or involved in an ad hoc way, very few connected to strategy. And that is a huge miss when you consider sales is the execution of your strategy in the market kind of important. You need to pay attention to it, executives.
1: Yes, this was the fire alarm for me. You said 28% of CEOs adopt a hands-off policy with sales. Another yeah. 40% are involved in an ad hoc way and 18% focused on deal making while doing little else to coordinate with sales or yeah. support customer relationships. And only 14% are strategically involved as growth leaders collaborating with and supporting their sales organizations. That 86% is a problem, and that's why I went back to that story I told, and it, it got me thinking. You know, I like a lot of CEOs I've known; they want to run their companies, they want to know what they want to do what they're comfortable with. But I don't know that growth is the thing that's as important to them as as running it. Right. Let's step back though. Why does the C suite not want to participate much with sales, even if they didn't come up through sales? Many times uh, I, I
0: highlight this idea in the book that there is a stigma around sales and that stigma, sort of the negative stereotypes and the incorrect assumptions that we make about sales and what it takes to be successful in sales, lead us to thinking about the ideas that it's just people with good personalities who can be aggressive and pitch and close and be articulate and just get out there and tell, tell, tell. Right. Mm -hmm. Tell customers how great we are. So they don't need senior level involvement. It's, they don't need strategy. I just need them to go out there and to be, in most cases, the walking, talking brochures. Go sell our value often means go tell customers about how great we are. Go Mm -hmm. tell them all the good things we can do instead of this being recognized as strategic even the execution of our strategy in the field, in the market, every day.
1: So as Dr. Phil would say... How's
0: it working for you? Exactly. And this is why you have so many executives that at the end of the month or the end of the quarter are angry, frustrated, disappointed at the sales results.
1: So you talk about why, you know, pitching and presenting and closing doesn't work the way it once did. If you can't tell, I want this... Uh, interview to be the equivalent of me grabbing some CEOs by the lapels and shaking them. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so, for those, you know, a lot of companies will think they're unique or, or different. Uh, I hear it all the time. Yeah, we're, we're different. But explain why uniqueness is so much more ephemeral than most CEOs realize. Well, there is a point to differentiation in the market. That is
0: about what you sell, your features, your advantages, your brand, your capabilities, uh, your ability to serve. But all of these things are easily copied by competitors. Maybe not easily, but they are copyable. Is that a word, Doug?
1: Yeah, and, Um, and actually, they can copy it more and more quickly all the time.
0: Right, and easier and faster. And uh, sometimes they'll even leapfrog you. They'll do it better than you. So if you're leading a commercial enterprise, if you're a leader of a business, if you're an executive who's trying to grow, then you need to find ways that you can win in the market. And there is a path to winning part of a competitive advantage that, according to the research in the book, I highlighted is somewhere between 25 and 53%. You read part of that. Mm-hmm. And that 25 to 53% of the decision criteria is about what we call the sales experience, the interaction between your buyer or your sellers and your prospects and your clients who are buying from you. That the value in that interaction, that the way that interaction uh, comes across to them, the way they experience you, the way they learn about your company, the way they see opportunities to do things differently or to solve problems differently, that whole portion of the customer experience, the sales experience, is a huge decision criteria that gets neglected by executives.
1: Yes. And you explain that, there's one other great line, the bliss won't last long. <laughs> I, <just> love, <laughs> yeah. I love the way you turn a phrase, Scott. But you, you write about how qu- quickly your competitive differentiation and products and things can can vanish. But you write that there is an additional route to a competitive edge, and that's to you know, not to sell a product or service or even a solution is to de- design and deliver a compelling and differentiating sales experience. And I think it's McKinsey and Gartner were the two that showed that that's the twenty five to fifty three percent numbers, yeah, which were right. Uh, the the sales experience affects whether they even become a customer, right?
0: Yeah, I, I when you consider. You know, think about your own buying decisions if you're listening here, right? When you go into the market to buy anything, competitive options often start to look similar, sometimes even the same. They can be really hard to distinguish from one another based on features or even brand. You know, you can have two very, three good companies and three very comparable uh, products or services that you might be looking to buy. So what is the difference if you meet with all three of them? Mm Mm-hmm it's usually the interaction with the seller did they help you to think differently about an issue did they help you to see how you could address something uh, in a more effective way did they help you to uncover something that you thought oh I didn't realize just how important that was did they help you to think differently about these things and in that way you've got the sales experience that tips the scales in your favor when so if you're good in everything and I think you have to be you've got to have those are the table stakes today, good product, good brand, good service, what can tip the scales in your favor? The research, the data here says, the sales experience is what does it. And you get that right, you win that part of it, you win more than your fair share of business.
1: Yes. And for me, the sales experience is a subconscious insight into what it's going to be like to be a customer. Without a doubt. I have a terrible sales experience. I, I don't even continue. Let's talk about CX, though, customer experience. A lot of listeners know that uh, acronym. Yeah. And there have been I, a no- th- number of books on the show about customer experience. And and you write, I, I I agree. The problem, most CX efforts are all about what happens after the customer has made a purchase. The first mile of the CX highway is the sales experience. If it's a bad experience, customers get off it, exit <laughs> one, and there's no... There's no customer experience. There's no revenue at all. Yeah. I, I, I feel very strongly about that. And there's another author who's been on the show twice who writes about this, Lee Sauls. And I'll include links to his uh, interviews on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com.
0: I'd add to that. It's like, oh, if that sales experience is good, they're going to have a customer experience, but it'll be with somebody else.
1: <laughs> yeah, but my chances are good that if at least the, it's a good sales experience, they're going to be probably pretty good at treating me as a customer. I mean, I have to, I have to use yeah, these heuristics doubt. To, w- to make a decision. A doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. So you talk about how this concept is, uh, you know, uh, by taking a strategic shift at the executive level, mm-hmm. and you say, would your customer write you a check for the sales call? <laughs> It just mm-hmm. it just stayed with me for the whole book. Would your customer write you a check for the sales call? Tell us the story about Gary from the HVAC company where you live in Florida, and yeah HVAC companies in Florida are extremely important right well the, the first thing I,
0: I have to point out is that that line would customers pay for? Would the customer write you a check for your sales call? Comes from Neil Rackham, oh, who right. I worked for for years, and uh, is uh, author of Spin Selling and Rethinking the Sales Force. Yes, uh, and of course, you know that line. He would ask that of our clients, but he would also ask it of us. and And as his VP of Sales, I would say to him sometimes, "Is like, um, you know, like it's hard enough to get them to write us a check <laughs> for what we're actually selling them, let alone the sales calls." And of course, that was a metaphorical question. It was like that check shows up in the form of margin it shows up in the form of your winning it shows up in the form of your getting expanded business
1: yes i didn't but mean was, to give short shrift to neil rackham that, no no that, i can i can never let i can never uh,
0: let that go yeah, without that, making that makes, sure that i credit him for that
1: that makes you almost uh, sales royalty right off the bat so yeah <laughs> he is mentioned in so many books that have been featured on the show
0: yeah brilliant really okay so this the ac story um is a great illustration of when products and services and what you offer looks similar, if not the same to your competitors. Here's how you win on the sales experience and here's how you win in a way that in selling what looks like a commodity, you can win at a high margin and win more than your fair share. So uh, of course I live in Florida. Here air conditioning is a strategic purchase, much (laughs) like the early Verde special,
1: right? Oh, yes, yes.
0: And um, and I live in a hundred-year-old house. A hundred years ago, we didn't use much insulation. I don't know if we even knew what insulation was a hundred years ago. But
1: And not many people lived in Florida a hundred years ago. I guess hmm. they were just starting to get the railroads then.
0: So the old house charm of a bungalow craftsman-style house that has one-and-a-half stories uh, makes it maddeningly difficult to get the entire house to be one comfortable temperature. So... After And and I'd gotten a new system several years ago that just wasn't working. So my thought was, I I need to get a new system. I need to get a larger AC unit and push more air through the house. Uh, By the way, if you're listening here, how many of you have customers that come to you and tell you what they need and tell you how you're going to install it or deliver it to them, right?
1: I think a lot of customers
0: think they know what they want. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, there's an opportunity for value there because I thought I knew what I wanted. I wasn't entirely sure, but it just seemed, you know, logical. So I call three companies, all three on referrals. So they all come to me equally. The first two sort of measure the square footage of the house. I say, yeah, units kind of small for this square footage. Yeah. Let, let's get you a new AC unit and we can have that here in a couple of weeks and we'll do the install. Yeah. First two same make and model is what they provide, what they offered me in their proposal. They suggest the exact same thing. Third person, though, Gary, comes in with a quite different approach. And, and we have a conversation about the, stro- the unique struggles of the house that is similar to the conversation with the other two. But then Gary says, give me an hour. And he starts measuring not just the square footage, but he measures the windows. He's calculating something that I learned was called heat load. Uh, big windows in this house. And then he's got this uh, machine that he's measuring the speed of airflow through our ducting. And he's got some different calculations there. And then he comes back to me, says, you don't need a larger unit. I'm like, huh? He says, you need smaller unit, but you need two of them. And you need to completely reroute the airflow because what will happen if you just get a bigger unit, you're just going to have cold spots in the house. It's going to push more air. Parts of the house are going to get colder. Other parts of the house are not going to cool at all. You're going to be even more unhappy. And then Gary's proposal was 300% more than the other three air conditioning salesmen. Right. Mm -hmm. But which one did I choose? Gary. I chose Gary's <laughs> yeah. because Gary had an option, a solution for me that I hadn't considered, that I wasn't aware of, that was based on his understanding of what I was trying to do. And that's what I bought. Now, what's really fascinating about that whole story, I think the most interesting part, if you're listening here and you sell in a market where competitors offer similar or same things to you. And if you're in distribution, you might be in a case where your competitors offer the exact same thing. That's where these folks were. Mm -hmm. Well, the other two air conditioning sales reps had all of the same equipment and the same technologies that Gary used for my house. They just didn't access them. They didn't help me think differently about it. They weren't strategic about it. They weren't, weren't looking at my objectives, my goals. And as a result, they just pitched a bigger unit. Gary came in with a complicated and much more expensive solution, but it was clear it was going to work, and it did.
1: That's great. Yes, I've heard the term in that industry of rip and replace. Just (laughs) whatever's there, give them another one. So I I thought that was a very compelling uh, story. I want to jump to... um, a Discussion of Strategy, and that's on uh, page 34. You, you talk about how, whether they realize it or not, the CEOs who are abdicating their responsibility for customer relationships are making sales responsible for the company's strategy. Mm-hmm. Explain what you mean when you say they are basically delegating to sales the company strategy.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the first things I'd say is when I talk with executives – Every now and then I get in a conversation where I'll say, don't tell me what your strategy is. Let me go on a half a dozen sales calls with some of your people. And then I'll come back and I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> because <laughs> right. when you think about the the central elements in most strategy frameworks, what are they? They're about target markets, ideal customer profiles, competitive advantages. You know, what? Le- what do you leverage in the marketplace to win and your objectives. And the only place that the elements of, All of those strategic elements show up is in a sales call. They show up when your people interact with customers. It doesn't happen at headquarters, no customers there. It doesn't happen in your field offices, no customers there. The execution of that strategy shows up on the sales call. So are your salespeople meeting with the ideal client profile, or are they taking meetings with whoever they can get a meeting
1: with? (laughs) Anyone with a pulse, right?
0: Right? So it's like if you're selling to financial institutions – you know, are they selling to the, you know, and you want to sell to large ones, are they selling to the small small community bank, or did they get a meeting at Bank of America? Right? Further on that though, maybe Bank of America is great, but are they at the right level meeting with the right kind of people who can authorize your purchases? You know, it's that old line in sales. Are they meeting with people who can say yes? Or are they only meeting with people who can say no? Mm-hmm. So You know, the ideal client profile, the target market is not just about the right kind of company, but the right level in that company. So many strategies fall off the rails because executives will say, why are we doing business with this organization? Why are we doing this kind of business, right? So that's one part of it. In those selling situations, are your sales team engaged with the kind of conversations that help buyers identify issues? or see opportunities that can be addressed with your products and services, preferably the ones that you've invested millions, maybe billions of dollars in building and competitive advantages, or do they just pitch whatever they can and close whatever they can? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in in the context of doing all of that, are they discounting and, and reducing value in order to win business and killing your margins and hurting your business objectives. So if you think about what determines the success of the strategy, it's not what is said in the C-suite. It's what happens in the field. And whether you're getting your share of the right kind of customers, selling the right things at the right prices, these go directly to your P&L. And if you don't have a clear line of sight to that sales team and directing them and leading them to do the things you need them to, then they wake up every day with the power to set your strategy in the market.
1: It's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to uh, the CEOs and their sales teams, because as you can tell, this kind of fascinates me, because I'm uh, more inclined to, I'm sympathetic to the salespeople. I have a, I'm, I'm a marketing podcast host who loves sales books and, and, and the sales process and what salespeople do. So, this has to do with the uh, CEOs and their sales teams. Their their relationship is often, uh, as you say, distant at best and mm-hmm. ag- antagonistic at worst. Sure. So let me ask you. Always be closing. What is the curse of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, as it relates to all this?
0: Well, I'll reference back to the stigma comment that I made earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talk with executives about what they really want to hire in sales professionals. Despite the, the wide acceptance of the idea of consultative selling and ability to sell solutions, what I often hear the most is, I need people who are closers, who are hungry. You want to work here? Close! <laughs> so, that, I, I hear a lot of that. And that, that idea seeps into the hiring profile. It seeps into how we manage them. It seeps into what we measure them on. And the fact of the matter is, I'd ask everybody listening here, when was the last time you had a sales call with somebody who was hungry to close, who was, who was very money motivated? Yeah, they had right? commission breath. Right. <laughs> exactly. Great term. So when was the last time you had, and how was that sales experience? Right. So if that's the kind of people who you're hiring and then you are focusing on, I wanna, you know, really drive their performance and and push the numbers and heavy pressure to close, well, then that's what you are creating in the market. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the value of the sales experience contributing a quarter to a half of the decision, well, you put those two factors together, it's like, huh, you are you are looking at a recipe for backfire on your effectiveness in the market.
1: Absolutely. And you know, uh, as I as I continue to learn and, you know, read all these books and I'll tell you I'm not the, you know, smartest guy because like Forrest Gump. I'm not a smart man. But I've slowly come to the conclusion that a lot of companies will say, "Oh, we have a marketing problem. You know, our our website sucks or whatever." But I think more companies have a sales problem. And they need more sales work with maybe just a side of marketing. You know, yeah. Like it's like a company will say, our, our website's terrible. We just need a new website. I say, yeah, okay, well, let's look. You have 50 people visiting it a month. <laughs> what is a new website going to do for you mm-hmm. uh, right off the bat? And so that's, right. I, I, that's my experience. But let's jump to uh, communicating uh, strategy. You say few leaders are clear and succinct when they communicate the strategy what are some of the things that the sales team needs to know and understand that doesn't seem to be communicated often or well i think you touched on one which is who are the who are the ideal customers
0: right I think if you go back to this idea that sales is the execution of strategy mm-hmm. and you either drive that with your sales team as an executive or they're going to do it for you based on what they feel like doing in the moment mm-hmm. then there's a handful of factors that that make a huge difference. The first is what what are the objectives that we are pursuing is it revenue is it margin uh, if it's both, then what's the right calculus on those two things? You got to think about, you know, what are our goals here? Sometimes sales doesn't even really understand that. It's like, just get out and sell wh- whatever you can.
1: You're not uh, helping your sales team by saying that, right?
0: No, right. It's like ju- just pushing to, and sometimes over-reliance on one metric causes others to fail. Right, right. The, the second that becomes critical is who is, is your ideal client profile like what is the value that this, that this group goes for so if you think about who is likely to value what we do we can't be everything to everybody we can't reasonably cover every part of the market so what part of the market are we going to put all of our energy all of our focus into and then the third thing that becomes critically important is understanding what is it that they are going to value I refer to this in the book as the power play, which is this idea that uh, what is it that you do better than anybody else?
1: Right. I want to ask what you about that reason- next. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What are the reasons that they're going to choose you? Mm-hmm. Because so many capabilities presentations and marketing brochures and, and frankly, sales pitches cover everything. But if you're listening here, I'd ask you, be honest, what are the reasons why customers really choose you? And I would suggest it's probably not a really long list.
1: Yes, it's and it's just, not what you think.
0: <laughs> yeah. So ju- just a few reasons. You're exactly right. You, you may not even be properly aware of them. So think about why they choose us. And then the last thing is, how is the sales experience going to create value with insight, with expertise, with helping our customers think differently? Because if you as an executive cannot crisply and succinctly describe those things to your sales team, and then be able to have a conversation with your sales leaders and frontline sellers about what great looks like in that. Well then you you're missing a huge part of your business.
1: And and is that then tied into why you argue that limiting your sales organization to meeting quarterly quotas is a form of self-sabotage because they're only focusing on like one metric as you mentioned? It is. And I, and I, and
0: I want to go out of my way to point this out. I'm not saying for a second that the monthly or the quarterly or the weekly or the, I'm not saying that these aren't important, but what you find is often a myopic focus on these singular metrics. And with that, you really do a, a disservice to your customers and to your sales team in terms of creating something much more powerful, much more, much more valuable.
1: Right. So you, you mentioned uh, the, one of the flags, and uh, one of the core parts of the book is what you call the five-flag start. Normally a yeah. race uh, has <laughs> like one flag, but you, you talk about these five really? flags, and I, I loved it. You quoted George Box, the British statistician, <laughs> who said, All models are wrong, but some are useful.
0: Yes. Uh, my,
1: my favorite quotation
0: for all consultants to remember.
1: All models are wrong, but some are useful. I love it. Mm-hmm. So you've got these five flags you need to uh, get squared away. And this, I mean, you don't, it's not like it's 500. <laughs> There's just these five. Right. And, and that quotation,
0: like that, those five flags, they form what is the strategy model or framework that I propose leaders consider in the book. And whether they use those five flags or create some of their own, my point in highlighting that quotation was is that there's gonna be something imperfect about these five flags for your business. If you're reading the book or if you're listening here, you'll look at it, there is something that isn't exactly a match for your business. And the real question here is, can you use those five flags in a way that it is useful for your business? It won't be perfect. Parts of it will be wrong. Can you adapt it? Can you find a way to make it useful so that you have a precise and a powerful sales and strategy framework that can drive your success in the market. I don't care whether it's mine or somebody else's, but do you have one? Can you make it
1: useful? Right. And the secret to getting ahead is getting started. And this is mm-hmm. a great place to s- just to start. And so flag one, which is one that I think uh, if you don't have this, there's no point in going to the other four, but a lot of companies don't even have this very well uh, articulated. It's, it's what defines success. Hmm. Now, we talked about you know quota what a- <laughs> explain why you yeah. need to have more than just a financial measure on its own when you say define success what are some of the elements that folks need to be thinking about
0: yeah so i i would offer here that defining success in a commercial enterprise always has a financial or numeric component for it mm-hmm. right but that's usually not enough because you could imagine in most organizations, think about your own right now. You could hit a number, but there are things that could happen that would say, yeah, we did that, but that, wasn't re- that really was not the kind of success we wanted this year. It could be that you got the wrong kind of clients. It could be that the clients that you got aren't going to stay with you long enough. They're not thrilled. It could be that you didn't get your new product and service to the market so that next year looks lousy. So there's usually more than just a, again, I use that term myopic, a singular focus on a single metric. Mm -hmm. Um, I I also offer that you can't have too many. So there's a little bit of Goldilocks here. Um, It's like gotta be not too many, not too few, but just right. And enough where you can paint a picture of, here's where we're going as an organization, right? Um, Leadership is about results. So here's where we're going, here's what great looks like for us, and this is how we're gonna measure that.
1: So flag two, as you mentioned, is what is your power play? Now, for those who are not hockey fans, explain what a power play is. A power play is when you have a
0: numeric advantage on the ice, or if it's in field hockey, on the field. There's a lot of other places that power play is used, but you have more players than the opposition. Because one player
1: might be in the penalty box.
0: Yes. The other team may have done something wrong or bad or maybe, you know, whatever the reason you have a moment of competitive advantage, you have more players. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole idea of a power play is that it's objective, it's clear, it's, and, and it's easy to agree upon. And I use this term power play to describe answering the question about how customers will choose you or why customers will choose you. So when you think about what your power play is, the real advantages you have, not the laundry list, not the fact that you have 20 offices around the world. Or we have
1: nice people.
0: Nice people. Or, you <sighs> it know, has to be fact-based. Yeah. So there's this sense that this is a reason why we win. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And, and to get really clear about that and to not get distracted by all of the, uh, you know, sort of the marketing hoopla about all the things that are great about your company. Right? This isn't the this isn't the capabilities presentation. It's the guide for conversation, really.
1: Almost like what your unfair advantage is.
0: I like that. Um, some people object to the term unfair. I don't know that there is such a thing in, in you know, sort of creating a business, but you want an advantage that you can say definitively, this is going to help us win. By the way, that advantage could be the sales experience. There is a way to think about that. I know we get to that in a moment, but just a Sprinkle yeah. that in here, uh, but you you ought to have in the market. If it doesn't have to be perfectly unique either, or none none of this is to say you're the only ones in the world who can do it. Mm-hmm. But either something you are truly great at, have a leg up on the competition, in, deliver at a level of excellence that is agreed upon widely. You know, the, these are power plays.
1: Right. Again, back to the the fact base. Now, uh, flag three, as you touched on, who will value your power play. Now, I can remember once working in advertising in New York, working on the Schick Razor account. <laughs> and they made a, I think it was a disposable Razor at one point. It was called the Slim Twin. And I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but it was a very <laughs> slim blade. So as a result, the, the the messaging was all about how slim it is, how slim it is. And finally, I can remember sitting in a Focus group, well, on the other side of the mirror, but a moderator was talking to all these young men about uh, the razors and so forth, and she was probing for you know how they felt about that. And one guy finally shouted out, who gives a damn how slim it is? (laughs) 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 I hate shaving. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was like, they were not uh, valuing the power play, uh, if you say. So uh, do you find that there's a wide gulf between what companies value or think their customers will value and what? their customers actually do value? I think
0: there's a, a, a huge gulf in the way that shows up in the sales experience. Mm. So when salespeople show up to pitch, right, or to discuss products, what do they do? They share all of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to hear everything in this capabilities presentation. I'm going to hear everything in this pitch instead of the few things that matter to that potential client or customer, Mm -hmm. and the few things that are likely to tip the scales in your favor and help you to win. Instead, the practical application of that idea is that they show up as walking, talking brochure and tell everything, and as a result, the things that are most relevant, most impactful are all at the same volume.
1: Yes, and in this uh, section, there are a couple things that just really resonated with me. And you you tell a story about uh, Pete's Coffee, and they were uh, experiencing uh, some, some flattening sales, and the CEO had a big presentation by the marketing team, and they had all these <laughs> analytics and everything, spreadsheets and so forth, and it turns out none of the marketing team had spoken to a single customer. Right. Oh,
0: <laughs> oh the humanity. <laughs> In that particular case, uh, the president, Eric Lauterbach at Peets, has been a client for a while. Um, he he came up through sales. He started his career in sales. So he was flabbergasted that with all the data and all of the insight being shared, when he asked, well, what did the customers say? Nobody had an answer. Nobody had <sighs> talked with one. They had done some surveys. They had Nobody had actually been on site.
1: Oh, big error. Big yeah. error. And then on the next page, you are uh, talking about a, You say uh, you were doing some research and you write, whether the top leader ventures out of the office to pay a visit to the customer, brings the customer into the C-suite, or does some of both, what the Pinterest co-founder, CEO Ben Silberman, shared at an open forum with uh, some of your researchers is key. He said, know your customer. And then he raised his voice and added, (laughs) you, the CEO! (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, right. yes so I'm sorry I just I was just grabbing the CEO lapels uh one more time. Yes there it is.
0: But it's the, you know the the um the sort of incredulous nature of that response. That's why I wrote it that way in the book, right? It's like no the one emphasize something it's not your marketing people getting data, it's you the leader of this business. That relies on customers for a hundred percent of your revenue, by the way, you really ought to know how they think and you really ought to be in touch with them. It is not enough to dive into internal stuff and finance and HR and legal and operations and neglect this very important thing. And yet so many executives Wildly disconnected.
1: And as long as I'm around, I will not understand why that disconnect happens. And yet, after hundreds of these books on the show, that is one of the linchpins, is simply understanding your customer. In other words, the the companies that understand their customers just a little bit better than their competition. Yeah. It's dramatic. So Right. Yeah, now, you mentioned flag four, how does our sales experience create value? And one of your mentors used to say, and this is really important for the marketers, if you want to know how sellers ought to sell, learn how buyers buy. Mm -hmm. So touch on that and and how to go about learning how buyers buy uh, and and how that can help inform your development of a sales experience that does create value. I think starting from the
0: marketing uh, suite or the executive suite or the sales suite, do you understand the decision criteria That your customers use? Do you understand the decision process that they use typically? Because if you understand that, then you would probably do a lot of things differently. (laughs) And if you if you consider how your organization goes to market, if you have have a really deep understanding of what are the criteria that these customers use and, and what is the the process. And of course, by the way, that will vary from customer to customer. So it's not always the same. But do you understand it at a sufficient level of granularity that you can engineer around it? Because I promise you, their the way they buy and their criteria they use are not based on how good the pitch is <laughs> yes. and and how much closing activity there is. Oh. And that's what your sales teams are getting managed to. And if and again, it's really easy to point the figure at them or the finger at them for doing something wrong, but Look upstream and you'll find the answer to why they're doing that. They're getting led and managed that way.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, one other book that has been uh, enormously helpful for me over the years is called Buyer Personas by Adele Ravella, which came out a number of years ago. I think there's an updated version coming out next year, but it's just amazing. There's only like five insights. If you can understand it, you can get deep into what you were just describing, like what they, hmm. what do they really value, that type of thing. I'll mm. include a link to that that, uh, that interview. So the fifth flag is what must we improve, build, or acquire to execute our strategy? And the execute part uh, is uh, (laughs) very, very important. Now, let me just uh, take a quick detour. There's an episode of the American TV show uh, called The Office where the idiotic boss, (laughs) Michael Scott. Michael Scott, right. Yes. We love him. He – he was having some financial troubles and someone mentioned that he should declare bankruptcy. Now, he didn't know what that meant, but that didn't stop him from proceeding with this with this idea of how to do it. I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> now, great. I mentioned that because you write in this section on flag 5, you will not achieve your strategy by declaration. <laughs> Right. So think of <laughs> think of Michael Scott, and then you, you do tell a story about a CEO who was sacked by a board of directors because his transformation yep. strategy failed to produce results. And you write, "Scott," he muttered to me over breakfast. "I know we had a great strategy, but we failed with the sales team and execution." Mm-hmm. So the the idea that strategy can fail in execution but still be a great strategy is a fundamental misunderstanding of what strategy is. Yeah. Explain.
0: So I have done lots of strategy work in my career. I spend a lot of time with executives, uh, crafting, formulating, building strategies, right? And I would say that it's necessary, not sufficient, because we always succeed on the development side of it. It's always good. We always feel like it's good. But what makes the difference is how that strategy is led and driven throughout the organization, how other people understand it, how you take the actions, make the decisions, uh, act on the choices that determine the success of that strategy. Too often, they're binders, PowerPoints, whatever, and then they sit on the shelf until the next all-hands meeting where we share it again. And instead, the work in between those about how are we going to drive this through our business, what are we going to do differently? So with that fifth flag, I'm trying to create a bridge here towards execution that says, if you're going to execute this strategy, there's things you do now you need to get better at. What are you going to improve? There's things you don't have that need that you need to have. So how are you going to either build them or go get them? And that will determine whether or not your strategy is going to succeed or not. And then of course, all of the requisite action around that that is strategy execution, not just creating it, announcing it, declaring it. So. <laughs> And uh, now now just get out there and sell.
1: Right. Why uh, do they not there's a understand There's in between it? that. Yeah, there's a
0: <laughs> lot in between that. And that's what gets missed. And, and back to the, you know, whether, that, whether that's entirely wrong, whether I got the right questions for your business exactly, I'd encourage you, take that idea, make it useful.
1: Yes. Let me just ask you one other thing here. Tying to the failure of execution to the strategy, you write that leading the execution of strategies requires leading for results instead of managing tasks. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Magnus and Milestones.
0: Magnets and Milestones is a simple and metaphorical model to help leaders stay close to the most important projects, initiatives, and efforts in their business without getting drawn into the weeds. Years ago, I was working with a client that had another consulting firm involved as well, I was playing nice in the sandbox. I'm doing my thing, they're doing theirs. But the other consulting firm was helping to manage over 300 what they were calling work streams. Uh-huh. Many of you have heard this term, right?
1: Yes, I, I read that it, in your book. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So the CEO and COO are spending four days a month, you know, out of 20 work days, four days a month, listening to readouts about what was happening on all of those work streams. And it was simply too much information, all in the detail about many times, what are the tasks that are being done here? So my encouragement is to go up a level or two and think about what are the critical objectives that need to be accomplished and what does success looks like look like here, right? Like what does the outcome look like?
1: Kind of back and to then, flag one, right?
0: Yeah, at the execution level.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: At the execution level, exactly. And I use the term magnet because... I'm sort of riffing on an idea from a quotation in the book by Charles Kettering, which says, a problem well-defined is partially solved. Mm -hmm. And the big failure point for execution is projects that are poorly defined, right? People working on them, not really clear about the outcomes, lots of activity. We have meetings and talk about lots of activities, but the outcome gets lost. So, I say focus on the magnets, really clear projects to paraphrase that quotation. I'd say a project well defined is partial, is on its way to success, right? Mm -hmm. On its way to completion. So, define the projects well. And then, instead of getting caught up and mired and drugged down into all of the conversations, we're going to, we did this, we did this, and let me update you on this to be able to say, I don't want to hear about that. I trust you're all working hard and doing lots of things. What's the next milestone that will tell us that we're moving closer to the magnet, the objective? And I only want to have conversations about the milestones, not all of the tasks that are being done, because I want to get into those conversations about milestones and hear about what are the barriers to progress? Why are we on track? Why are we off track? What resources are needed? And then we're having much more strategic conversations, not just sitting and listening to updates, everybody telling me what they did last week.
1: Right. And is that related to why you say that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure?
0: Exactly. Exactly. You, you've you been a part of projects before. Everybody listening here has been a part of uh, a big objective where there was a measure of progress and everything then became about the measure. So it might be, we want to improve our marketing efforts. I'll use your example of the website beforehand. Mm -hmm. So here, um, the completion of the website could easily become the target, but completing the website was not the goal. Improving the marketing was the goal, (laughs) right? right? So that was a milestone. (laughs) Uh, But when, when that milestone becomes the target, then it's like, we've lost the big picture.
1: Right, right. I love it. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So, Scott, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: I would say this. Leadership is about results. It does not take a great deal of leadership to maintain the status quo. And if you are leading a business, a commercial enterprise of some kind, then, then getting out of the status quo is almost always about some kind of growth. And i go back to where we started this conversation. If you have a sales team that is responsible for revenue, net income, connection to customers, then you need to make sure that that sales team is aligned with your strategy. And only one group of people can do that. And that is the leaders in the C-suite that cannot be delegated. Don't delegate the book. This is a point of differentiation in the sales experience that you have a chance to increase margins, Grow your business and impact a wide variety of metrics on. That's the heart of the matter.
1: Oh, well said. Is there one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book? Perhaps while they're waiting for the book to arrive. I think the one thing I would think about, particularly if you're in the
0: in the marketing field or you're an executive, and even if uh, your role is individual contributor as a seller. Is to think about what's valuable in our sales experience. Mm. I promise you, it's not your pitch, <laughs> right? I've, I've I've observed a thousand sales calls. talked to customers after. I never hear, "Wow, they were so articulate." They were just the the capabilities presentation was like Hamilton. I laughed. I cried. It was great. <laughs> you know, nobody ever says that. What they say is. The seller helped me to think differently. Mm -hmm. They helped us with a a different way of approaching an issue. They helped us to understand elements of how we could implement in a more successful way. They used insight. There was expertise. That is what you need to think about in terms of where is your sales experience valuable.
1: Oh, that's great. Scott, looking back, what books have most inspired your work career? And I'm I'm guessing maybe Spin Selling was one of them.
0: Spend selling some, but I would say that the idea that I just mentioned was inspired in 2001 when when I met, or in 2000, when I met Neil Rackham. So rethinking the sales force for Mm -hmm. certain. Early in my career, I read a book called High Performance Sales Organizations when I worked for a company called Learning International. That was part of, uh, originally part of uh, the old Xerox sales training. And that book had a, a huge influence on me as well. The, those two. And then the third one I'd say is uh, a book written by um, Frank Cespedes, um from Harvard Business School who wrote the foreword for the book, Aligning Strategy and Sales. And uh, of course I, I read that book and I was instantly I had mentioned this to Frank. I was upset with him because I wished I had written. (laughs) Um, And and then, of course, it was, you know, important I get him to write the forward here and he was willing to do that. So those three, those three have influenced the work here because they are, I think this is important. They all have sales in them. Those books are leadership books. They're not about sales. They're about how leaders need to think about sales in their business. And this is where leaders get off the road
1: oh terrific well at marketingbookpodcast.com we'll include links to everything linkable including all the books that have been mentioned your site your linkedin profile listener please reach out to scott in some way and thank him for being a guest on the marketing book podcast guests on the show have told me how much they enjoy hearing from marketing book podcast listeners if nothing else share this interview on linkedin and tag us so we can thank you The book is The Growth Leader, Strategies to Drive the Top and Bottom Lines. The author is Scott Edinger. Scott, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.